What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Brutally Speaking Podcast. I am one of your hosts, John, and with me as always is Daniel Terry. How are you doing this evening? Dude, I am, uh, well, barely alive, but I'm doing all right. <laughs> yeah, you've uh, you had a rough day. Yeah, it wasn't the best. Um, I ended up getting, um, well, I ended up getting sent home from work uh, for having a fever. And uh, I've had a really nasty sinus infection for the past couple of days. And, uh, you know, in this current day and age, this environment, coming to work with a fever is not the best course of action. So they're like, yeah, get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, this episode's guest is Christopher Hall, the vocalist of uh, Stabbing Westward, also a guitar player and partial programmer and producer and jack of all trades, I guess. I think the word you're looking for is extraordinaire. Yes, uh, that is a word I could use. Um, this was actually kind of fun. Uh, you know, the band had put out a new single as of when we did this uh, interview, but then basically COVID happened and seemingly all the plans the band had just uh, like everybody went to shit. So now I don't know when the record that they were supposed to be working on or putting out. I don't know when that is is going to be coming out. Um but this was a fun interview. I, I probably we wouldn't be known as uh, huge Stabbing Westward fans, and I know maybe with this podcast you wouldn't assume like, oh, of course you guys are going to have Stabbing Westward on. But I think uh, you know, especially when Dan does like New Metal May or New Metal May, is it New Metal May? Yeah. Oh, okay. For some reason, it didn't sound right as I was saying. I was like, it's not New Metal May. What do you guys call it? Um, you have too many theme months, so it's a little bit hard to keep them all in track hey, and we, not get them mixed up. We only have two. We we have. New Metal May and uh, Industrial, Industrial December. Industrial Yeah. Yeah. That one doesn't roll off the tongue as well. <laughs> yeah, look out for KMFDM. That, oh, that's going to be rough. Did you already start listening to all their records? I mean, I kind of have no choice. Yeah. And are you guys actually going to do the, what is it, the AMFKD, whatever the reverse of that is? Are you counting that? We'll talk about it. Okay. <laughs> kind of, it's kind of kind of hard not to talk about it. Right. Um, but yeah, no, Stabbing Westward, this was a, you know, this was one of those that I had the opportunity to do thanks to being furloughed. Um, like a lot of the interviews, actually, we'd done pretty recently. And, you know, it, it just started off so easy. Um, I typically don't, you know, we don't just typically bullshit with someone for a solid 20, 30 minutes first like and it got to the point where as you kind of i don't remember if i kept it or not but uh, his kid uh came in he was like oh i'll be off the phone in like five minutes i was like oh shit i haven't asked you anything <laughs> <laughs> hey man it happens i mean sometimes sometimes you just get into that flow of conversation and there's not really any way out of it you know um and and i like those chats like i i don't care what anybody says like i know like objectively speaking it's not like uh, it's not like considered professional or whatever, but like I, I don't know, man. As time goes on, I care less and less about that kind of stuff. Oh, yeah, I, I don't know. Sometimes I'm just like I love the idea that it could be a rather you know conversation, like you know listening to uh, the ID Ted T podcast today with uh, Ted Danson and his wife Mary. I can't pronounce her last name like Streamberger or whatever. Um, I think it's the mom from uh, Step Brothers. And they, it was just, like, so great to hear them all, like, kind of bullshitting and talking. And, and intermittently, you know, they would kind of ask each other questions and so forth. But just as a whole, it was like, it just felt like, you know, the whole thing that, you know, I think everyone who listens to podcasts and enjoys them will always say is the reason they like them is because it makes it feel like you're a fly on the wall in, like, in an environment where you get to listen in on a conversation that between two people. And, 
you know, I think in that regard, I think this this episode with Chris, I think is really fun. I mean, even after sending it over to the publicist after the fact, you know, it was like, oh, it's so crazy how like you're able to just kind of put people into uh, into an ease, like you know, like they're able to just kind of talk to you, and it's like, well, that's sort of the whole point of these things, isn't it? Is just to have a conversation. Yeah, I mean, conversation like conversationalists. I think the the, the appeal of podcasts isn't just like landing a great interview. I mean, I know we enjoy that on our end, but like, it's really just having those conversations. You get to be like, yeah, I chatted with somebody from Stabbing Westward. And yeah, maybe it didn't like have a lot of direction, but uh, I really enjoyed that I got to have that chat. And I, I don't know, it makes people seem very real. Yeah, most definitely. And especially with a band, you know, like something we like to kind of focus on a little bit is the fact that, you know, getting a band and getting someone like Chris from Stabbing Westward, Stabbing Westward was one of those bands that you know, kind of broke up and went away before the internet really became what it is and, and long-form interviews be, kind of came a thing. So it's uh, it's really cool to kind of get to chat with someone. You know, it almost kind of reminded me of the John Clayton Pitch Shifter episode where it's like you're just kind of talking about an era of music making that's so prolific to us as, like, you know, mid-30s because it's like, you know, everyone knew Stabbing Westward growing up, like, if, especially if you were into the kind of music that we all were. So the fact that it's like, oh, I'm getting to talk to the dude that I used to watch on MTV like almost every day, and I'd hear that song on my local radio station like every day, it's it's kind of surreal. It's just, I don't know, it's so weird. and But it's really cool at the same time because I, I hope that basically I will be able to, or that we will be able to uh, find fans that, that kind of maybe forgot about the band. Yeah, yeah. I mean, to be honest with you, I was actually kind of surprised whenever this kind of came across the desk because I was like, man, I. to be honest, I haven't kept, really kept track of that band. Well, they just got back together probably two or three years ago. Yeah. So it's not really been that long, and they haven't done a whole lot uh, since. But uh, I, I think the thing that it will be interesting to me is just to kind of see what comes of the quote-unquote reunion and just the insp- the new inspiration to create music under the Stabbing Westward banner again. Yeah, totally. And I think uh, I think this is pretty exciting. I I, I was a I, I would say that I was a, a fairly big fan um, back in the day. Me and me and my friends used to uh, be uh, a big fan of how just dark. <laughs> <laughs> their records were absolutely well i think this is as good a chance as any to uh get into the conversation with chris of stabbing westward and we will talk to you guys on the other side of it Hi, John. This is Chris from Stabbing Westwood. Hi, how are you doing? Good, how are you? Good. Sitting here with a beer right after a long day of work. Oh, I wish I was there. It's still the middle of the day here, so... Well, <laughs> I mean, that's the, the pros and or cons of being out on the West Coast versus here in the Midwest, so... Yeah. Where, where are you? Uh, Michigan. Grand Rapids, more specifically. Oh, okay. Oh, right on. I got one of my tattoos in Grand Rapids. Oh, where at? Uh... It was a long time ago. Was it? Was the Reptile House in? Oh Canada? shit! The red, yeah, Rept- <laughs> the Reptile House. Yes. Yeah, yeah. We played there ages and ages ago, and there was a tattoo shop below it. Mm, that's right. After sound check before the show, I got got a tattoo there. So man, it is kind of interesting sometimes in doing these chats, talking about the Grand Rapids. I kind of fell in love with 
as a as a young kid coming up here from Kalamazoo and so forth and uh coming to see shows and and all that cuz you know for lack of a better term I, I just I sometimes don't feel like uh kids understand what it was like to kind of escape from small towns or whatever to go be a part of a, a fledgling you know music scene and to feel something you know to kind of escape and I feel like now everyone's just so up their own ass uh and trying to just topple over and put everyone down that there is no local scene anymore really kind of anywhere at times now do you think that it's because you're old or do you think it's because social media has ruined everything for the whole world so here's the thing i used to book shows and you know i i got tired of people going there's no good bands whether it be on the national scene or even locally and mm-hmm. it really was dealing with local bands that kind of drove me out of doing that because it was just absurd the the egos that i was dealing with and i'm like but you haven't done anything <laughs> like why yeah, do, why do you need eight hundred dollars to play five minutes from your house like that's absurd right one of, one of the funniest things we run into now is um, when we when we tour, we generally fly in with our gear. Right. Or no, fly in without gear. And um, it's almost always uh, local support. Mm-hmm. And the local support will come in with like four... <laughs> I already know where you're going. ...stacks of gear. Like, they'll have like so much gear and all this lighting and all this production. And then they'll have their t-shirt set up. We'll have like, you know, 15 t-shirts and coffee mugs and mouse pads and LED lighting. And just they're just like over the top ridiculous. And we just roll in with like a couple of guitars, a laptop, and a projector. That's like our whole thing. And um, we usually have to, you know, either rent or borrow a drum kit, which tends to be the local band. It's always like the drummer doesn't want to share his, his, his you know, his drums because he's like, well, you know, I've had these heads on since I bought the kit and I don't want to put any dents in them, you know, <laughs> stuff like that. And it, it's, just, it's just absurd. Like, like you said, the egos of local bands can sometimes be crazy. And it's like, well, you know, the, the show is sold out, but I'm pretty sure people paid the $38 to see us, not not you. So just get up and, and play and have a good time. You know, it doesn't don't make it this whole I think the thing that's like kind of weird about it at times to me even is just it's you know healthy competition is what drives bands you know to to hopefully Mm -hmm. be better and stuff like that you know and it's kind of funny I know this isn't necessarily in your vein but I'm sure at least maybe in namesake you'll know who they are but you know the band Pop Evil they are from here in Grand Rapids and I remember you know we're gonna drop an episode with their guitar player in a couple weeks and I remember when they were like the first of uh, four or five when, you know, kind of speaking to what I'm saying, you know, they were playing the main room of the intersection, all local showcase and able to sell out like an 800, 1200 cap room with all locals because they were all locals were that strong. And, you know, one of them from the band coming up to my friend that was in the headliner band and they're like, man, you know, we just, you know, want to thank you for getting us on the show. But like, how how do we kind of get these opportunities you're getting, you know, getting to open for corn, getting the Budweiser and Jaeger sponsorships and so forth. And, you know, my friend was just like, you just got to write better songs. It all starts there. And I kind of was looking at it right. with my friend like, dude, you're kind of a dick for saying that. But all these years later, you know, I kind of realized Absolutely that it, true. it just that is where Absolutely it starts. True. Yeah, it's not about your hair. It's not about your costume or your mask or your makeup or your website. It all comes down to songs and songwriting. 100%. I would have said the same thing. Maybe not in an asshole way. But yeah, it all <laughs> comes down to that. Like, it comes down to the music. We played with bands that like um, have pretty strong followings uh like we played as a band in colorado had a really strong following um great looking guys you know uh, all wore masks and costumes and the whole production 
And I thought, man, if they just had a single song with a chorus or a singer who could sing a melody, they'd be maybe somewhere, you know, but just it's like it, all that imagery and stuff and, and social media presence can only take you so far. You have to have something people can latch on to. Well, I think that's kind of the thing. And maybe, you know, kind of speaking to what you were saying a little bit ago about how is it my age or is it really the reality of the situation? And I think there's a couple of things because as someone who kind of likes listening to a lot of behind the scenes things, you know, from growing up in the 80s myself to even you know, having friends that have had varying levels of success in the industry, whether it be, you know, in the band writing situation or in bands or even producing or songwriting, you know, just multifaceted parts of the industry. I always love to learn how the industry works and why, I mean, as much as you can pinpoint why something is successful versus why something isn't. And I think, you know, the thing that I kind of come back to is, you know, a lot of people like to talk about the 80s and 90s and how many one hit wonders there were and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, something that always kind of struck me was, hey, we didn't have social media. So if you like something or it caught, it's because it was predominantly good. There was no bullshit marketing necessarily behind it because you weren't seeing sponsored ads on Facebook and so forth. And, you know, I guess that was technically applied in the sense of maybe a label you know, payola for radio and so forth, but... Right, so it's sort of a similar thing, but less so. You, you couldn't force people... They could get they could get songs on the radio to a certain point, but listeners had to respond. You can't, you can't completely um, brainwash people through just... You can play a bad song over and over again, and it's still a bad song. Yes. And there's, you know, plenty of those in, in, in the history books. But one of the things that's funny about One Hit Wonder is that to get one hit is a huge oh absolutely that's that's like there are bands from the 80s that are able to tour you know uh cruise ships yeah Uh, like i have like you know big shows that had one song you know kaja gugu or like there's a bunch of them and to have we kind of dismiss one hit wonders as losers but they're winners because for every one hit wonder there's a thousand no hit no one cares you know bands that came out and just no one ever heard of them so i don't know well, I think it's kind of interesting about that, though, is even, you know, looking at, you know, 80s, we'll say just 80s pop music, 80s pop music encompassed alternative, uh, synth, industrial, regular pop, radio, like active radio rock kind of stuff. Yeah, rock radio. Yeah. What was considered pop, you know, stuff like that was really interesting. And even going into the 90s, it's like there was so much that crossed over into pop that it touched so many different genres that I think that was kind of what's exciting about being alive at that point and really getting into music is that, you know, especially being a a product of MTV is I could be in front of MTV all day and be exposed to up and coming or underground hip hop, underground, you know, alternative rock, metal, anything and everything in between. And it's like, you know, now it's you. I feel like everything's so segmented now where it's like, well, here's my little pocket of this and I I can't have any of my metal coming over into my pop music. And, you know, I need my pop music to be, you know, Ariana Grande or something like that. But even what's kind of been interesting as I get older about pop music is, and I think it was Ariana Grande actually, is, you know, I'm listening to the song and I'm like, holy shit, they're using a fastball single, like their second or third single that didn't catch but they're using its chorus as 
the chorus melody going on. And I was like, and this is a song people probably don't even know what the fuck it is. But it's just shocking to see, you know, music that I grew up on already being sampled now in pop hits. And it's like, I think uh, Dua Lipa was using uh, NXS's uh, Need You Tonight guitar riff. Uh, as, Need You Tonight, yeah. Yeah, uh, as the, uh, like, uh, yeah, as their, like, <laughs> vocal yeah. melody for, for her new single. And it's just, it's really interesting to, to be a, a student, I guess, of all kinds of music to see what samples what and how they use it and reinterpret it for a lot of different things. Yeah, I, fi- I find it in- it's important as I grow older to still listen to the radio and to still listen to what is happening musically in the world because it's so easy when you hit a certain age to just go back to what you're used to to keep I mean my Spotify playlist is pretty much 83 to 92 <laughs> you know for the most part um, I don't listen to it I, I don't even listen to a lot of 90s even though we were in it because I grew up in the 80s so um, all the music that inspired the 90s bands were the you know the cure and the Depeche Mode and and the Joy Division and stuff like that so that still tends to be my playlist a lot and I go into a little bit of the 90s before we actually hit um, but I still try to listen to the radio when I'm in the car just to hear what's going on in the world. Like what, what what's happening now? Is it any better? You know, and I, I try and find positive things in, in music. I know that everyone's like, oh, pop music sucks or whatever. Um, and it, it generally does, but there's still good, strong songs here and there that you can find. You know, something that's kind of interesting to me in thinking of, you know, kind of about you guys and, you know, I'll kind of ask you as someone who was kind of in it, because I, I, I want to say you're, it, I think, about 10 years older than me. I'm going to be 36 in a couple months. I'm way older than that. <laughs> I'm 20 years older than you, officially. <laughs> I never want to, like, assume, and it's like, you know, you see things on the internet, and you're like, is that correct? I, I don't know. But, uh, you know, that being said, you know, something I heard a really interesting, I don't want to call it a factoid, but maybe it's more of an opinion, that someone, uh, and I wish I could remember who it was specifically, but uh, I think I was listening to Eddie Trunk's uh, podcast a couple of weeks ago, and he was talking to uh, some producer, and they were talking about the difference in trends and sounds over the decades. You know, the 70s kind of had more of a warm kind of uh vibrant tones to a lot of their music and the 80s was kind of really thin and, and loud and you know someone goes well yeah you realize that the production and the sound of a decade is based on the drugs that people were using in the industry <laughs> so you know the 70s and i think good i think a lot of it was, was a technology too i think that um that, that there was a lot of tube amps and those synthesizers in the 70s. Um, and then by the time that you got to the 80s, there's a lot of thinner drum machines, thinner keyboards, a little cutting edge. Um, the Roland Jazz Chorus was a solid state amp that had this like, but you know, maybe people are drawn to those because of what you're saying, which my four-year-old just walked in the room, so I can't discuss that topic. <laughs> <laughs> he just walked in holding a Wii controller, yeah. But no, for sure, whether it was ecstasy or cocaine or whatever they were doing back in the day or weed. Um, yeah, for sure. I know that a lot of records in the 80s got mixed too too bright from people doing too many drugs, yeah, for sure. So kind of getting a little bit more uh, interview-based, um, you know, okay. it's uh, it was kind of interesting, you know, like leading up to this, uh, you guys, you know, kind of hit on something I was going to ask, and uh, you announced, obviously, that there's more uh, music coming in the way of Wasteland, and as well as more uh-huh. music uh, besides that. Um, it seems that you guys have kind of been on a creative high since reuniting. What have you attributed to the outpouring of ideas? Well, I never actually stopped writing. Um, when the band broke up, I started a new band. The a Dreaming. Week before we broke up. Yeah, and, and I just kept writing this whole time. And I, I actually feel like that 10 or 12 year period um, 
gave me a chance to sort of figure out who I am as a writer and to hone my craft. I spent a couple of years um, being an assistant engineer for Brian Carlstrom, the engineer for Dave Jordan, who produced our third record. Um, after the band broke up, I went and worked as just an assistant engineer, just a grunt, got coffee, you know, did the regular stuff. Um, and he, he taught me all about producing and engineering and, and kind of the old school way of doing stuff. And I uh, got to work with a bunch of bands doing that. So for me, that 12 years was, you know, not only was I actively in a band putting out music and touring, but I was also sort of honing my craft. Because when I was in Stabbing Westward, we had four main writers. Uh, for the first record, it was me and Walter and Stuart, the guitar player. And after Stuart left on the first record and Andy, the drummer, joined, it was me, Walter, and Andy. Not in that order. Andy, Walter, and me. I was sort of the bottom of the barrel writer. I would write lyrics and vocal melodies um and each album i get to write a song or two but not not significant amounts i I would have those sort of token you know songs that they would stick on the album um so when when the band broke up it gave me a chance like i had all these ideas in my head that i wanted to write it gave me a chance to to really work on that um so i i i i'm kind of in a different mindset these days than i was back then um walter didn't get to write much at all over that time so he's had a bunch of ideas building in his head. Um, so yeah, we have, we have a lot of songs written, ready to go. Um, but I think also the times, like, uh, you know, we're, we're, I'm at a point in my life where I just have a lot that I want to say um, lyrically and musically. So that would be the main reason. Also speaking a little bit to the past, I have a very weird question that uh, a friend of mine and I have been re-getting into in the last uh, probably year or so. Uh, since, you know, you guys were going to be playing a couple of festivals uh, around the area that maybe I'd get the opportunity to interview you and ask you this. But, uh, you know, your music is very cinematic uh, on its own. And as such, you know, you have been a part of a lot of soundtracks, uh, most notably like Mortal, Mortal Kombat, the first movie. And mm-hmm. the interesting thing about it is, though, is while your music appears in the movie... It's not on the soundtrack, and I've noticed that that is... I know, isn't that weird? It's a trend that I've noticed has happened to you quite a bit, so I was kind of wondering, yeah. wh- why is that? What is the case of why you're in the movie but not on the actual soundtracks for a handful of movies? I didn't really understand, um, like, what is the soundtrack if it's not the songs that are actually in the movie? I, absolutely. Um, <laughs> I, was, I was really confused by that. Yeah, because the Mortal Kombat soundtrack went gold or platinum it was a really big soundtrack and all these other bands were on it and got gold and platinum records but every time that a character from mortal Kombat would walk on the screen it would be our music mm-hmm. playing in the background and i'm like uh <laughs> yeah we we wondered about that but we um you know we got paid fairly well for that stuff every time they play it on showtime or hbo or whatever we still get a nickel <laughs> yeah, we never really knew the answer to that. I, I, I think that at the time, um, a, a different label curated the uh, the soundtrack. I think it was like, um, not Sony. I think it was... It was TVT for Mortal like, Kombat. Like, okay, yeah. So then they, they chose a lot of their bands. I know that System Machine Gun yeah. was, uh, was on it, I, I believe. So yeah, I think TN- TNT put their, their own stuff on it and just basically curated songs inspired by um, and just sort of did a branding thing to get people to buy it. In the meantime, the, 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 the guy who directed the movie and did the film score chose our music. And, and we were pretty fresh at that point. Um, Ungod had just come out. Um, I don't even know if it was out yet, but he had heard it and he liked how cinematic it was. So um, yeah, I think, I think part of it had to do with John Fryer too, the guy who produced it. Um, had some connections with that as well. Yeah, it was just always weird, you know, like I said, it, your music is featured without, 
don't remember if the vocals, it always seemed like the vocals, right where they would come in, that's when the, the music would cut out. So it's always like, what what's yeah, going on was, with this? It, it was generally just the instrumental sections, yeah. Yeah. Um, kind of, you know, something that's interesting in thinking about, you know, in prepping for this conversation and thinking about the band's career and the fact that, you know, you obviously you guys went away. I'm sure you guys get compared to Trent Reznor and Nine Inch Nails quite a bit uh, just due to the time period and all that kind of stuff. But something that was interesting in thinking about it was, you know, when Trent called a day, called it a day for Nine Inch Nails, uh, you know, he kind of had made the comment that, you know, he just didn't feel he didn't connect with the lyrics anymore and some of the songs the way he did when he wrote them. You know, he wasn't, you know, a, a junkie more or less anymore going through all these things and, you know, had to kind of figure out a new entry point when he decided to relaunch the band. As such, you're in a unique position where, you know, the band broke up and then you were gone doing the dreaming and so forth and then came back to it. And I kind of wondered, is there a similar story maybe for you where, you know, you're coming back into something and you have to figure out how does Stabbing Westward fit into your life, you know, all these years later? Yeah, for sure. Um, Time-wise, um, <laughs> in all, all sorts of manners. Because, um, yeah, um, lyrically, the most of the older stuff is still okay for me to sing mm -hmm. some of it is um a bit ridiculous um, <laughs> some of the really angry violent mood swings and pomf and some of these songs are um a, a little over the top lyrically like like just how many times can you drop an f-bomb in one song apparently when when i wrote that one we were listening to a lot of rage against the machine and just like how many times can you can you swear in one song but um yeah mo most of it like waking up beside you is like a classic a classic song. Uh, Shame um, is another song that, that I think aged really well lyrically. Uh, what do I have to do? They're just timeless. You know, they're about a time and event, but at the same time, they're about, they could be about any event that's of similar nature, which you continue to go through. Even when you're married with children, you still have your ups and downs um, that you can, you can tap into. And um, I, I, I never really had like a drug thing that I fell into or wrote about. So I didn't have like a dark, super dark period of my life that I don't want to go back and revisit or whatever. I don't mind. And plus, I, I always, I mean, I saw, I saw Nine Inch Nails play God, probably a dozen times um, between the like late 80s, early 90s. Um, the band I was in, Die Warsaw, opened for them a whole bunch of times. We actually toured with them for a while. And um, the way that Trent would completely immerse himself in the performance live um every single night just a hundred percent in in the music in the role in the character tackling rich patrick throwing the drums at chris brenna just trashing the entire stage that amount of intensity that amount of like i want to call it authenticity but at the same time vulnerability it's like really he would too. really just yeah, he would he would just create, he had this character and he would just become that character for two hours and and that's um you know that's not really what what I do I just kind of get up and 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 sing and I, I I believe in these songs and I believe in the lyrics but I don't have to like rip open old scars to to sing them I can still I I, I get joy out of singing the songs even if they're dark songs I still find a certain joy in sharing that energy with the audience and whatnot so yeah it's not really a problem for me. Kind of last two questions I have for you since you got to get back to uh, Lego Batman. Um, no, you know, mom, mom came and took him, so we're good. Oh, okay. Well, okay. Then I guess I'll expand a little bit on the question I just asked you. Um, you know, kind of coming back to Stabbing Westward after, you know, the Dreaming uh, 
band cycle. Did any of the past experiences that you went through in Stabbing Westward, especially with Walter and everything, inform you of what you wanted to do artistically this time around? Uh, or even maybe from the business perspective this time around where you're like, okay, if we if we decide to do this and come back establishing Westward, X, Y, and Z needs to happen because, you know, last time we did this, these are things that, you know, collectively we weren't, you know, we didn't agree upon or weren't into or, you know, just whatever. Because, you know, you hear all the horror stories of all the, we signed bad deals or we took tours because of, you know, label said it was in our best interest and we kind of weren't into it or whatever. So I just kind of didn't know if maybe this time around you were like, you know, these are the ways we kind of need to traverse being in, a, in Stabbing Westward now. Yeah, I mean, we had, we didn't, we didn't have a terrible deal or anything. We were signed to Columbia and they were really good to us. Um, we had, we had internal problems in the band there's just um it, it wasn't even internal problems we just had a lot of um we had a lot of chefs in one kitchen that was the problem we had three guys me andy and walter that any single band would be lucky to have one of us and we had three of us you know so andy wrote uh, what do i have to do sometimes it hurts haunting me he he, he wrote like a, over like dozens of songs in the band um at least half the sound of the band from the second album on was because of our drummer andy and then walter wrote the music to save yourself and and shame and waking up beside you and so far away and and all these other amazing tracks um and then i was you know i wrote the vocals and the and the vocal melodies and i was the singer blah 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 so i've got my own you know ego and thing going on in my head um and and a lot of times it was just hard to come to compromises everyone had sort of dug into their entrenched positions and um and it it, it got harder and harder with each record to to find common ground and whatnot um and so one of the things walter and i talked about well the other the other main thing was that on the final stabbing record all all control was pretty much uh rested away from the band by management and uh i don't want to use the word producer because i think that gives him way too much credit a guy that the manager hired to uh make sure that the record sounded the way she wanted it to sound and not the way we wanted it to sound and um that process was it for us when when i was locked out of the studio and told i couldn't come back in because the guitar player that we'd only met a few days before was going to rewrite all the songs that's when i kind of lost it a little bit. Um, so one of the things that Walter and I agreed on is that we would never again allow anyone to ever tell us what we're supposed to sound like or, or who we're supposed to be. Um, he and I would decide together, um, you know, what the, the sound and the direction of the band. And honestly, it's, it's, it's not even a decision. We don't sit down and go, this is what we're going to be. We just are who we are. This is how we write. This is the music we put out. This is how we want it to sound. Um, and that that was our biggest our biggest thing. It's like we kind of want to do it ourselves. We didn't know if we wanted to do a label or not. And then I experimented with releasing uh, the Dead and Gone EP um, ourselves, and and that did really well. It sold out of every copy as fast as I could print them. But uh, um, I had to print them. I had to go and like I had to order them, go pick them up from downtown LA, and then for each CD that somebody purchased, I had to sign it, put it in a you know, a, a mailer and then print out a label on my little, I've set up like a little office in my, my, my spare bedroom of, of shipping. And I shipped, you know, 2,500 CDs. <laughs> I'm like, okay, this is a full-time job and <laughs> we're getting five, five bucks a CD. They cost two and a half to make and a buck to ship. And I'm now supposed to split all this money with four guys. So I'm making like 
40 cents an hour, you know, <laughs> and it's like 12, 13 hour days where I'm ignoring my children and my wife and sitting here stuffing envelopes. I'm like, we need an intern for this or something. This is stupid. This is not, you know, in my job title. Um, and that's when, when, uh, when cop international and John Fryer approached us and said, Hey, we were wondering if, you know, you guys wanted to do a full length album with a label. I was like, yes. And Walter's <laughs> like, but man, we did so well on that last record. I'm like, yeah, you did great because I PayPal'd you money. But I sat for 13 hours and got yelled at for like spending all my time in my office, you know, licking stamps. I got toxic poisoning from that. Remember when George Costanza's wife died? Not true. I mean, that didn't happen. But yeah, that's what it felt like. I mean, I was like in my room for three weeks solid just mailing out, you know, 2,500 CDs, which is a, a, a huge burden. And I'm like, yes, we'll sign a record deal. And, and they gave us a, they gave us really good terms. And the one, the one stickler in the deal that was both the stick and the carrot was John Fryer was going to be the, the house producer for Cop International. And so he, he was the, he was the house producer for 4AD records in the eighties, which is one of the reasons that we got him on our first album with Dead Can Dance or the Smoto Coil, Cocteau Twins, um, all these other amazing bands. He was the producer for all of it. Um, and that's what Cop's trying to do this time around is they're trying to have John sort of dial in the sound of the whole label so it's a cohesive sound, which is right. awesome. Yeah. But it means, and it's awesome to work with John again because he's like the guy that did our first two albums and kind of helped define the sound of the band. But... He's going to mix our record. And that means that we are once again opening the door, which my four-year-old just did, as I said that, to um, <laughs> somebody having an outside influence on our music. And um, that's really frightening for us. You know, it's like uh, the, the first couple of mixes I heard from them, um, I knew they weren't going to sound exactly like our demos. I knew, we're not demos. We, we, we don't do demos. We I've, I've produced over a dozen records for other bands and I've done you know, dozens of remixes for other bands um, like Pig and, and a bunch of other bands. Um, and so I, I consider myself a producer. I don't consider myself a producer on the level of John Fryer or Dave Jordan, but I definitely consider myself a producer. And the, the mixes that we did on the Dead and Gone EP were uh, two of my mixes, one of Walter's mixes. We're both, we're both very proud of, of our production skills. So to let go of that and to trust this guy that we definitely trust to trust John to do it is just terrifying because the last five times that we've trusted anyone with our music, whether it's the dreaming or stabbing Westward, it, it's, it's scary. And so the first, the first couple mixes we heard back from John sounded quite a bit different. And I was being super open-minded about it. I'm like, okay, those sound different. Um, they don't sound like what I did, but they sound pretty good. And um, it's, it's just really scary. And so we're right now trying to find that balance with John. But yeah, that, that's, that's the most terrifying part for us right now is, is uh, as we write a song, I know in my head what I want it to sound like. And then I give the track to John, who's never heard it before, and he interprets what's there. And it's like, well, I hope he you know, makes it sound the way that we want it to sound. Um, or better. So that's, that's, that's kind of the, the crux of it. And you know, we've had we've had people try and tell us what kind of band we should be and how we should look and you know, blah blah blah. But at this point in our at our career, no one's bothering with that. They're just like, go do what you do. You know, we're gonna help you make the best music you can make and and get you some shows and stuff. So it's it's, it's pretty exciting. Um, it's just a little scary at the same. Time. 
Well, it's interesting as you answered a question I kind of had and have been talking about, you know, as as music fans do, where they're like, man, why did this one, re- like, their last record just sound not like them? Well, oh, there's man, there's the answer, awful. so. Yeah, it was so bad. The, the demos, the, the demos to the songs were a thousand times different. They sounded like stabbing last week. Can you release those, time, or is there a claw? I said, can you release the demos at this point, or is that technically a property of yeah, the label? No, no, they would, they would, we could release them. We'd have to talk to the to Andy. Yeah, I don't know. I don't, I don't think I'd want to, because when we started writing that fourth record, we were still on Columbia, and we were supposed to record it with Bob Rock. Oh wow! Um, so so we were writing, you know, uh, uh, a heavy industrial rock record like we normally would, and then um, all sorts of things happened at the same time. Um, uh, we we decided to get rid of our manager, uh, who had been awesome and gotten us two gold records because we had this person telling us, "Yeah, you got two gold records, but you should have had platinum records." You know, look at these other bands that have platinum records. You could have done so much better. And um, kind of like worm tongue whispering in Theoden's ear. And, um, but um, that's a little Lord of the Rings reference. But um, <laughs> yeah, we, we, we fired someone that we trusted. And we fired someone that we, we should not have fired. And I think Karma came back and bit us on the ass for that. Um, and this, this person who was telling us, you know, oh, we can do so much better. Their plan was to turn us into sort of like a Goo Goo Dolls. Uh, I don't know thing. It was weird. I, I never quite understood the vision. I'm like, well, we have 500,000 fans that like what we do. Wouldn't it be better if we just did what we did normally and they continued to like us? And that seems to me like a pretty good career. I don't, I don't want more. I'm okay with where we're at. I think it's cool. Um, but there's people that just thought more, you know, more, 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 more. And I don't think that you can authentically change who you are and expect your fans to to believe it. Like you, you know, I just, I just, I didn't believe it. I was like, this is, bleh. I don't like this at all. There's a couple of good moments on the record, but um, you know, once Mark left the band, um, the guitars took a turn down this like Brit pop kind of direction, and it just, it just all went south really fast, and it was awful. And I was, yeah. I do like So Far Away, though. I think that's a really good song. I have one last question, and it might be really weird, but it was something I, w- I couldn't help but think of. So I had talked to uh, John from Pitch Shifter a while back, and we got to top got on the topic of talking about recording technology and just how it's changed since the, you know, Pitch Shifter had started. And I would assume very much the same for you guys, especially using samples and, you know, uh, drum programming and so forth. Mm-hmm. You know, did you find, you know, I know obviously you were writing stuff for the dreaming and everyone kind of had their own thing they were doing, but you know, upon reuniting and having to kind of maybe potentially recreate some of these sounds or find some of your old loops and so forth, were you having to figure out ways to update and get some of these things from old technology that you're like, shit, they don't make a cable to, to put this into my new Mac or anything like that? Like, did you run into any of that right. at all? Walter did. So Walter <laughs> had um, Walter had all of the original sounds on a Kai S1000 discs. He had it on a, what were those called? A zip drive. Oh, yeah. He had everything on a, on a zip drive. And then he had all the backing tracks to all the songs, to all the um, tours that we ever did on ADATs. Oh, wow. ADAT tapes, which are basically VCR tapes, just hi-fi VCR tapes. Yeah. So he had to go on Craigslist and find um, an ADAT. And I think he went through 
one or two before he actually found one that worked. And um, he had to transfer. He had to basically put the tape in, hook up eight outputs to the ADAT, put it into his Pro Tools and record eight channels off the ADAT start to finish. And then he would send me these files um, <laughs> as, as Pro Tools sessions, but they didn't have, like they weren't locked to a grid. So like, I didn't know what the tempo was. I'd have to figure out the tempo. And because it had been on tape, it had kind of stretched. And the sections where I sort of got it would speed up by a little bit and then slow back down again. Um, and a lot of it was uh, the, the first three albums were pre-Pro Tools. So there's no Pro Tools on the first three albums. They're all on 24-inch tape. Um, so that those tapes would get transferred to an ADAT, which then got transferred to Pro Tools, which then got sent to me, which I put in Ableton Live. And I would have to find a tempo to match Save Yourself. And he didn't want to have to recreate any of the samples. He wanted to use the track. He's like, I think it's important that we're authentic and we use the tra tracks exactly the way that they, they were. You know, I don't want to update them. I don't want to sound like one of these bands where you come in and it's like, don't stand so close to me too, you know, right. um, by the police. And, and um, I'm like, okay, I get it. Um, so then I would, I would try and dial in these tempos and instead of being like 104 BPM or 105, it'd be like 104.278. <laughs> and then halfway through like bar 16, I'd have to speed it up a tiny bit and then slow it back. And it was like oh, just a mind numbing. And by the time I get to the fourth song, I'm like, let's decide exactly what songs we're going to play. Because if I don't have to do <laughs> all these songs, I was like, I have kids, man. Like his kids are grown up and stuff. Like I have a four-year-old and a six-year-old and I don't have time to like, why am I doing this? How did I get this job? Um, it was grueling. And so then I wanted to add, because all of it was really thin sounding too. I wanted to add some beefy, heavy synths that just updated it a little bit on top of what was there. But it was so hard because nothing would line up to the freaking grid. The grid in Pro Tools or the grid in Ableton is just, you know, just if you want to program something on a drum machine or a synth, you just, you know, play it and then quantize it. It goes to the grid. But the, the, the grid has to match the song. If the song doesn't match the grid, then nothing that you're doing matches. And it just feels like, you know, bowling balls in a dryer instead of, you know, <laughs> everything kind of binding together. Um, it was a nightmare. It was really, it was not the way I like to work at all. Um, and then we had to dig up a bunch of old Emacs. I had Emacs 2 discs that um, I haven't owned an Emacs since 95. The first album was done on an Emacs and the rest of the realm albums were done on uh, a Kai S1000. So it was, yeah, it was really a nightmare. When we did the Elo Jesus EP, um, those were tracks from 1989 and almost none of it existed anymore. So we recreated all that stuff from scratch and I had to go, I had to go rent Last Temptation of Christ to get the samples from Last Temptation of Christ that were the kind of backing loops for Plastic Jesus. Um, don't tell Martin Scorsese that. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it was like trying to recreate that was for me easier because I just started from scratch. Like, okay, it was a bass synth. I don't remember exactly what bass synth it was, but I have a lot more to choose from now than I had back then. I had three back then. And so it's like, I'm going to find a cool one and then I'm going to make it fatter. And so, yeah, that was, that was fun. But redoing the old tracks was a nightmare. Yeah. John from Pitchshifter. I haven't seen them forever. Yeah, I. So I had asked him that question, and and then he goes, "Yeah." So when I was kind of going through everything a little while ago, when we were talking about doing these reunions and so forth, I found what would have been the next Pitchshifter record sitting on a hard drive, and I was like, "Holy shit!" And he oh, was wow. like, "Yeah." So like, wow. here was this whole extra record that we had started and never never worked on. So it's 
it's sometimes asking weird questions like that where you're like, man, so like old technology, how is it, you know, getting it to be new, like with everything that you can use? And then you get a story like that where you're like, yeah. And then I found a whole record that was pretty much almost done, but we never finished. Cool. And it's like, wow. All right. That's I'm glad I asked that weird question yeah. for that. Stabbing, Stabbing had a record that after that self-titled, um, we, we sort of started trying to write some more stuff and um, it didn't go anywhere. The band broke up pretty quickly after that, but there were two or three songs that were actually pretty cool. Um, one of them was Home and You, which we did for uh, a, a compilation CD for Cold Waves. A couple of years ago, we, we pulled that out of the closet and kind of shined it up a little bit and gave it to them. Um, yeah, there's, there's a couple of pretty good songs that we had, had started writing that never saw the light of day i have no idea where they are now but yeah i was gonna say you're uh you did remind me as you were talking about the the passion of the christ uh or was the passion of the christ that's not what you said last temptation last, last temptation, yeah, last temptation sorry yeah, yeah. um samples uh, you know some of the stuff you use from uh what is it full metal jacket uh is it full metal jacket yeah yeah. On the, on the, yeah 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 full metal jacket see that that was before we were signed that was 1989 okay so we, the, 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 the rules the rules seem different back then <laughs> i was gonna say how how do you uh how much does those samples cost to get cleared the, i don't they did, i don't think they ever got cleared technically fair enough we don't <laughs> We we only sold 500 copies of that EP, so if they want their money, I can. I don't mind giving them 500 dollars or whatever. It's like not well, I mean, deal. now you got streaming, and those those samples are up on streaming, so they can en- enjoy that half a cent. <laughs> are those on streaming? Uh, are those on Spotify? Well, I mean, I was listening to the uh, I. W- <laughs> Forgive me if I'm saying it incorrectly. The uh, Iowa Jesus EP that's on uh, on iTunes. I was listening to it most of the day, trying to be like because between all the samples on oh, that EP, wow. I was like. How did they clear these samples? <laughs> legal, we have a great legal department. There you go. Yeah, no, I don't think they're. Yeah, I don't, I don't think they're supposed to be on streaming. I wonder how they got up there. I don't know. Oh. I'm, I... I'll, I'll have to look into that. I think Walter's fear was, you can sell them on vinyl, but don't don't put anything up because I think we could get in trouble for that. I'm like, oh, okay, I'll have to look, I'll look into that. Yeah, because there, there's all the samples. I mean, especially on that EP, there's so many samples that are on that from well-known things and i was just like fuck man how you guys must have been like either the label was like like until we get a cease and desist like fuck it like because that's just i mean that's kind of how the that was for a lot of you guys like for a lot of industrial and sample use it was kind of very punk rock diy like if you find out and you want to hit me with a cease and desist then fuck it like do it but until then like diy till i die and this is what it is yeah so that was yeah back in the old days we we didn't care because we didn't think that we'd ever be on record so but uh, lastly, yeah, the, the, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was just go ahead and finish. No, go ahead. I was just gonna say it and wrapping up. But uh, where can everyone find you or the band online? Uh, they won't find me online. I hate social media. But um, the the band has a Facebook page. Um, I think it's it's Stabbing Westward somehow misspelled because the guy who has the official Stabbing Westward page um won't give it to us. Oh, lame. So it, yeah, pretty lame. But if you just, I think if you Google it, and then we have an Instagram page and all that. We have all this stuff. I just don't go there. I think, dude, I'm right there with you. I'm about. I'm trying to hire someone <laughs> to run our podcast socials because I'm getting in growingly irritated with having to uh, use social media for various things. Like, I mean, that's one of the things yeah, that drove me to do the podcast is I miss having kind of long form conversations with people. Yeah, I, I hate it. So, um, I the only time I'm on my phone is if I'm doing something like this. 
I don't even look at my phone more than twice a day. So it's kind of my new thing since the quarantine. Well, thank you very much for taking the time. I, uh, I've had a lot of questions about Pleasure. your past and so forth, and I've had a blast chatting with you. Hopefully... This oh, pandemic oh. thing will uh will kind of end somewhat soonish, and you guys can get back out on the road, uh, so I can actually see you guys again, uh, or for the first time, I should say. Yeah, yeah, we had to cancel everything for the spring and summer, but hopefully in the fall, people will just give up and accept death as a part of life, and we <laughs> <laughs> can all go back to living. <laughs> yeah, I'm actually getting ready to go to a bar with my wife and some of our friends, and kind of see what. So not your social distancing out and about is like at a social gathering place. We we had our our kindergartner graduated yesterday on Zoom, and then oh, they had a, a bike ride on the on the beach where we rode like three miles. A bunch of five year olds on bikes, <laughs> pretty awesome. But they they rode their bikes on the, on, the, on the beach on the pier, and um, I was I was shocked at like the thousands of people just on the beach hanging out with no mask. Yeah, it's, it's it's pretty shocking how uh, how people just gave up, which is weird because all that work, <laughs> all that sacrifice. I was like, like, okay, we're done, over it. Well, enjoy the rest of your day uh, with your kid and your family. Thank you, and again, thank you so much for doing this, and uh, hope to oh, see you're you welcome. soon. No worries. Enjoy your beer. Yeah, thank you. What are you drinking? Uh, I am drinking a Bell's Lighthearted Ale. It's their uh, light version of their two-hearted ale. Uh, that's just kind of a might been my new go-to instead of a PBR. But I really wanted a nice whisk. Actually, I was going to make a really nice gin drink, and then I realized I didn't have any of the uh, nice gin nor a lot of my mixers. So I was like, uh, I guess beer it is. I'm I'm in a rum zone right now. Ooh. <laughs> I got I got like a big big bottle of rum a couple weeks ago, and I'm a good halfway through it at the moment. And then double IPA. I like a good twelve percent double IPA. Like... Here's here's a fun last question. Absolute last question for you. Okay. Stabbing westward as a beer, what would it taste like? Definitely a bitter IPA. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely a bitter, hoppy IPA. Um, yeah, or or a, a very dark, dark Irish, like a Guinness, but like heavier. So it definitely port, would like have a, a, a coffee stout, a porter, or stout. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, one of the two. But yeah, I could see the bitter IPA too. <laughs> Enjoy the rest that. of your day, and uh, we'll chat soon. Hopefully. Okay. Okay, thanks. Take care. Bye. So that was my conversation with Christopher Hall of Stabbing Westward. Uh, again, like, you know, we kind of kept echoing in the in the intro there. It was a lot of fun. Um, you know, I kind of enjoyed shooting the shit about, you know, the old Grand Rapids scene and especially him being like, oh, I got a tattoo one of the last times I was there before we performed. Um, I completely forgot there's a tattoo studio underneath uh, the Reptile House. So it's kind of funny that I guess forever he has a keepsake of literally being here in town and playing while on tour. Yeah, that is really cool. I mean, I don't know what the tattoo is. I should have asked him what it was. Should have had him show it to you. I think you guys were on the phone, but you know. Yeah, we were on the phone. It happens. Yeah. I also liked <laughs> also liked right at the end there when I was like, Yeah, I'm kinda surprised that you were able to get like clearance on those samples and he was like, Yeah, you know, we didn't, you know, but we only pressed it on vinyl a limited amount and I go, Well, I mean it's on like Spotify and shit. He goes, Oh, what? <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, Yeah, you might need to check into that, dude. <laughs> That's kind of funny. Um, what you know? This is kind of funny because, like, uh, going back, like, I went through and was listening to a ton of Stabbing Westward leading up to this. Were you someone that only kind of really liked that first record? Because it, it it almost reminds me of the the Finch "Say Hello to Sunshine" story, where it's like you know the band basically was following in what they wanted to do. And then, you know, they put out this other record and then everyone was like, you know, this sucks. This isn't what we wanted. 
And sort of the same kind of thing applied where, you know, as Krista was saying that, like, they fired some people that maybe they shouldn't have, that, you know, everyone was like, well, I mean, you sold, like, 500,000 copies of this record, but you should have been selling, like, a million or two million. Like, here's what you need to do. And it's, like, it's weird to hear someone go, well, I'm happy with where I'm at. I don't need that extra level of success. Like, I'm I'm totally fine with being where we're at. Like, that's a good career. And you just don't hear shit like that. Like, you don't hear people make that, uh make that comment like where they're like yeah you know like the success we had on this record is just fine yeah yeah i think the last time i heard anything like that was um i think it was when toomey interviewed uh jeff walker of carcass mm. i think it's the last time i've heard anything like that where he asked um because they had just put out their surgical steel record actually they'd been touring on it for like two years and um toomey was like yeah so i mean what else do we have you know uh what else do you guys got you know in the tank or whatever and he's like i don't know man this this record's going pretty well. I think we're just going to kind of keep keep doing that and uh not not exactly the same situation but like but like I can totally understand the sentiment too because like you know we get um we get messages all the time from people that are like oh you guys are only reaching you know however many people with your podcast um and we could promote oh, yeah. it more more for you and you know and half the time you go to their page and they have like a Facebook account and two followers and you're like yeah uh, sure, sure, uh, <laughs> but uh, but I mean it's it, it is one of those like being being content with where you're at just shows kind of a level of devotion to your craft mm-hmm. and you being fine with like dude I put this record out and that's all I really wanted to do I don't care if people like it or hate it. you know they could take it or leave it um, I don't have to sell I don't have to sell a million records to feel good good about myself. Yeah, it it was just really, I don't know, a lot of this was just really refreshing, but I think a lot of it is also the fact that, you know, as we sort of joked when I was like, yeah, I don't really know how old you are, how much older you are than me, and then he's like, oh, I've got you by almost 20 years, <laughs> but it's like, right. you kind of forget that sometimes, like, we're so used to seeing the adverse where it's like everyone's like, more, 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 give me all the fame, give me all the money, give me all this attention, and to see someone that's just like, well, I wasn't expecting any of this. So like, everything's everything that I kind of achieve is is pretty cool, and I'm pretty satisfied with it. But like, after a certain level, it's just like, well, I mean, how much more do I need? Yeah, I mean, you really, I guess it's, this depends on the person. But like, it just seems to me like you don't need much. No, no, I think that's a, a I think that's something maybe we should a lot of people could apply to their lives too. Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Like, and you know, I can relate to that in, in kind of a way because so my job is I literally go to work in the morning and I fix machines and then I go home and like, I'm kind of cool with that. Like I don't make all the money, you know? Um, but I'm also not like vying for advancement opportunities or, you know, trying to, trying to like outdo people. Cause there's like a lot of weird backstabbing and like bad human behavior that comes with that a lot of the time um and i am ambitious in my creative projects but like as far as work goes it's it's kind of nice to just come in and do one thing yeah i i would definitely agree with that i mean that's something i've actually been dealing with where i'm like you know i could go somewhere else i could go make more money but like i have a pretty low stress job and like i come in i do it and pretty much that's it and that's the only expectation for the most part and it's like, all right, like there's something kind of to be said about the simplicity of just having that luxury, I guess, of just kind of knowing that like what you do is what you do and, and that's it. And you just do it good. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I, I don't know. I get a lot of security with that. So, I mean, it's, it is definitely very refreshing. 
um, to hear somebody be like, yeah, you know, we, we had success and it was good enough for me. And I feel like, I feel like it could have been like 50 records, <laughs> you know, would, would, it would have been fine. Yeah. I don't know. I, I just, as a whole, and we keep kind of saying it, so I guess this is a good spot to start wrapping this up, but, uh, you know, it's just one of those where it's it's interesting. It will be interesting to see where the band kind of goes once everything kind of picks back up. If there is still, I don't want to say a demand, but if there's still, you know, the fandom of the of the band where people will kind of forgive the the last album that maybe they didn't you know like and kind of fell off from, and just remember that like the times and the music that they did love from this band, and if they'll be able to have that fandom support them and, and kind of bring them back to where they can have kind of a second chance at, at a career with this. Um, so I'm really interested to see what, you know, the new record sounds like the, the EP that apparently is also going to be coming out at, at some point. Um, the fact that they have so much music just, you know, kind of planning on releasing uh, has me really excited for the future of what Stabbing Westward will be uh, in, you know, 2020 or I guess more importantly, maybe 2021. Um, all of that aside, though, if you would like to keep up with Stabbing Westward, uh, it's pretty easy. It's pretty much Stabbing Westward on everything. However, Facebook and Twitter, it's Stabbing West WRD. Uh, I guess someone maybe had the A, so they had to get clever with it and uh, figure out a new way around that. Uh, Chris himself, as you heard at the end, does not have any socials, so I don't have anything like that that I need to plug. But someone who does have socials is uh, Dan. And he can tell you where he can be found on them. Well, yeah, I do have socials, so uh, I can be found. Let's see, I have a Gmail account, discussmetaldan at gmail.com, Twitter uh, at discussmetaldan. It's kind of a theme there. But uh, on Facebook, I'm just under plain old Daniel Terry, not uh, not Discuss Metal Dan, because that'd be kind of weird, right? Like commenting on my grandma's videos and being like, hey, um, I'm Discuss Metal Dan. You know, I don't know. It'd be weird. So yeah, I'm just Daniel Terry on Facebook, uh, but you can find you can find me and my other uh, not not quite as congested voice uh, over at discussmetal.com. I've got like 12, 13 podcasts over there. <laughs> and if you would like to keep up with all things this podcast, it is simple enough. Go to brewspeakpod.com. Everything you will possibly want to know or look at uh, related to the podcast is there. That's why it's a central hub. So just go there. Uh, if you would like to support us monetarily, you can go to patreon.com slash brucepeakpod. There is some sweet perks. There is some swag that you can get and some episodes uh, that you can get as well. And speaking of swag, if you would like to support our sponsors, we have a ton of them. Uh, we have On Point Palmade. Uh, keep your beard and hair looking on point. I uh, can't wait to get another haircut so I can actually utilize my palmade again. And uh, I got to get Dan this beard oil uh, here soon. Yeah, I'm drying up over here. <laughs> but uh, if you use our code BSP15, you get 15% off your total order. I uh, thoroughly enjoy having them on and, and having something that allows uh, us guys to you know have our best-looking faces uh, present and put forward. I don't know. Whatever you want to – however you want to interpret that. Just, just buy the product. BSP15. Save some money. There it is. Speaking of saving some money, if you want to head over to rockabilia.com, uh, you can go use our code BREW15 and get 15% off your total purchase order. They have over 500,000 items in their online store, ranging from just about anybody we've had on this podcast. There is actually a Stabbing Westward t-shirt. I think it's a lady shirt, though, so unfortunately, Dan and I, in theory, couldn't wear it, but... Uh, I might be able to. Yeah, you'd have to cut the sleeves off, because the sleeves are a giveaway that it's a women's cut. Oh, uh, well, you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, women work out too that's true um, but yeah they have a Stabbing Westward shirt pretty much any guest that we've had on this podcast there's something for them they have Testament gloves they have a Lamb of God candle they have 
pop culture stuff. You know, I've seen a house t-shirt. I think they have a handful, like I think a Jaws, some like tank tops and so forth. Like you can think of it, they probably have it. Uh, and you don't have to worry about uh, the integrity of the quality of the garments. It's 100% guaranteed. And they're 100% officially licensed through the bands and the, the avenues that they uh, have them through. Uh, they're 100% licensed. So not only are you getting cool swag, but you know that it's not going to tear on you or wash and fade very quickly. Uh, and that's important when you're spending your hard-earned money on new clothes. So head on over there. Let them know we're sending you. Use our code BREW15. Save 15% off your total purchase order. And last but not least is The Bean Bastard. Go get you some delicious coffee at The Bean Bastard. Facebook and Instagram at The Bean Bastard. I uh, just saw on their Instagram page earlier today, they're doing local pickups uh, from their store and stuff. So you can order online and go pick it up the next day, which I think is pretty cool for a, a small independent coffee company to be able to do such a thing yeah i think it's pretty legit and uh for the brutally speaking podcast i am john and i am dan and we will talk to you all next week